Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Time now to turn to Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor at McClarty Associates, for our international news review. Steve, welcome back to the show. Well, I hope everybody's not turning out for our second one. <laughs> well, my good friend Rick, uh, great guy. I'm sure he's probably, well, it's too late to golf in Canada, but that's normally where he would be going. He'd be heading out to the golf course. So, hmm, probably not, unless, I'm, he's, I'm sure, unless he's playing night golf. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure he'll listen to, to the podcast when you put it up online later. Indeed. So <laughs> Indeed he will. Great to have Steve Oaken with us. Uh, Steve, not much going on in the world this week, so I'm not sure we'll have too much to talk about, but let's try to find a couple of things. Let's... There's always a Lakers Heat Game 5 we could recap. <laughs> let's start by talking about the cancellation, uh, unfortunately, this coming week of the second presidential debate. It was just announced the uh, last couple of days. Well, I, I don't know after watching the first presidential debate, we would call this an unfortunate uh, cancellation. Uh, I could save save the American people in the world uh, from having to watch a, a second uh, a second bout where there really wasn't any debate, and it was Donald Trump trying to go Joe Biden in, into making you know an error. Um, the so, second one was going to be more of a, a, a town hall forum, though, right? The, they would answer questions from from a, a selected audience. Is that correct? That is, and that's clearly to, to Joe Biden's strength. So you have all these conspiracy theories as to whether or not uh, it, Donald Trump intentionally pulled out if he didn't want to be muted for his microphone, if he didn't like the format and, and just wants to go back to having a one-on-one -on -one debate with Joe Biden, which is still on the schedule for, for the 22nd of October. But I really don't understand the strategy of Donald Trump not wanting to have as many shots um, or bites, you know, bites at the apples he can one-on-one -on -one. Uh, with Joe Biden, even in a town hall format, because he is so far behind in the polls right now. Everything is trending Joe Biden's way. Donald Trump needs to do something to, to change the narrative of this campaign or he is going to lose in a landslide. What are the latest numbers looking like? How far how far behind is he or how far ahead is Biden from what we've seen? Well, Biden's, you know, double digits, you know, 10, 10 plus in almost every uh, new poll that has come out. Um, when the focus of this campaign is on the coronavirus and Donald Trump's handling of the coronavirus, Donald Trump is going to lose that referendum. You know, there's over 210,000 Americans who are dead. Um, the Donald Trump's handling of the coronavirus is not approved by a, a majority, a super majority and over 50, well over 50% of Americans. And so the polling is all going against him. And what is probably the most uh, troubling for the Trump administration is that seniors are breaking for Joe Biden. Um, they went with Donald Trump last time. If Joe Biden, if, if Donald Trump loses an entire demographic like seniors uh, to Joe Biden, which he carried in 2016, he will definitely lose the election. So it has been a bad couple of weeks for Donald Trump and the Trump campaign. Now, he was back in the uh, in the White House, um, made his kind of first public appearance after coming back from COVID-19. Uh, he was up on the balcony and then he had several hundred supporters, they said, uh, down in the areas. And then now this week, apparently he's planning to, to take some trips going to Florida, uh, going to Pennsylvania, a couple of these uh, key states this coming week. So he's back on the campaign, camp campaign trail. And this is where he's going to have trouble because everything people are going to talk about is, is he still contagious, even though he's got clearance from his White House doctors? Do people really believe what's coming out of this White House when it comes to his health? It's going to be, is there social distancing? Are they following CDC guidelines? Are they following uh, local laws, which would apply to everybody other than 
the president because this would be exempt from those local law uh, law restrictions on on First Amendment grounds. So even though he's going to be out and campaigning, desperately trying to talk about law and order, desperately trying to talk about those issues which he sees are to his strength, the conversation is still all going to be about COVID. So he's really in a bad place for these last two weeks, regardless of being in the White House or out on the campaign trail. So he's um, he's been talking about jobs, of course, his jobs plan. Um, Joe Biden's been out talking about his economic revitalization uh, in Pennsylvania, of course, one of the Rust Belt states. And and so who do you think who do you think is controlling the narrative right now? Is anybody in control of the narrative? Because frankly, I haven't heard much from Biden since, uh, you know, I, I don't hear much from him on a daily basis. Let's put it that way. He's not making the big headlines that, from what I've seen. The problem for Donald Trump is that Donald Trump's controlling the narrative mm-hmm. and he's pushing the narrative to exactly where Joe Biden wants it to be. If you watch the, the vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and, you know, and, and, and Senator Harris, you saw what the Republicans really wanted the, the narrative to be about. It. They wanted it to be about law and order. They wanted it to be about who could handle the economy better in a, in, you know, after uh, COVID is, is behind us. They wanted it to be on uh, Joe Biden and, and his being against fracking, which is a very important is- issue in Pennsylvania. That, so Mike Pence was effective in making the case of, of what the Republicans want the, the, the voters to be thinking about. The problem is Donald Trump keeps coming back to the coronavirus. And so he's playing right into the hands of making this a referendum on his administration's handling of COVID. And that's why he's getting worse in the polls as we get closer to Election Day. All right, let's move on. Uh, Just a quick kind of wrap up of the vice presidential debate, Kamala Harris, Mike Pence. Uh, they, you know, they went at it. It was is much, much more civil than uh, than the first presidential debate, to be sure. There were still some, you know, butting in on both sides, uh, much to uh, my personal dismay as I was watching. Um, but when we look at at who got the most points, who got the who got their talking points in, how how does that break down for the vice presidential debate? Well, look, the most important thing in the vice presidential debate was that that, that Senator Harris was really unknown um, to a lot of Americans. She, you know, she dropped out of the presidential race early. She's one of 100 senators. So this was her chance to show whether or not she's ready on day one to be president. You have two 70 plus year olds running for president. And so the question was, could she show she could be sitting in the Oval Office and giving those voters who might question um, whether she was able to do that, the reason to believe so. She did. She passed that with flying colors. She was smart. She was engaging. She could do that give and take with Mike Pence. She could evade the questions just as well as he could. Um, that the, that yeah, which she did answer. several times. She evaded a number of them, didn't she? <laughs> she did in Pence. They both did. That's, yeah. what, that's what they do. So, so, look, you know Mike Pence. Mike Pence has been vice president for four years. You know the Trump administration. You know Pence's role in it. So he didn't really have anything to gain or lose in that regard. He's a known quantity. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, Pence desperately tried to push the narrative away from COVID. He wanted to push it to fracking. He wanted to push it to whether or not the Supreme Court would get packed if the Democrats won. He wanted to push it off of COVID. He wasn't able to do that, in part because, of course, the president walks over all of his messaging by pulling out of the next presidential debate that day, <laughs> right? literally that day. So you blow up the whole messaging that you had going for you. So I thought it was fairly even in, in terms of what each side tried to do. But because Harris had more to gain and she did gain it, she ended up being the winner. 
On with Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor, McClarty & Associates. Uh, Steve, why haven't we heard a better response, more coherent response from the Democrats on the Supreme Court, the quote-unquote packing of the Supreme Court issue in which Republicans say that you know, once the Democrats get control of the House and the Senate, no matter who wins the election, they are going to try to push through, uh, you know, more uh, Supreme Court seats. You know, Kamala Harris dodged that question several times, didn't say anything about it. Uh, it. And it is a question that is a fair question, I think, at this point in the discussion of what's going on with the Supreme Court. Why haven't they come up with a better response? Well, not that anyone's asked me, but the response I would have would be, you know, like, first, Let's see what happens if there's even a confirmation hearing for Judge Barrett. Um, And then let's see what happens, how Judge Barrett votes uh, if she is confirmed and becomes a Supreme Court justice on the Affordable Care Act and whether she's going to take away the right to have health insurance when it comes to those 20 plus million Americans or even more. And that could be even 100 million who have pre-existing conditions. So I would say we don't have enough to answer that right now and let's see what happens after the election and let's see what happens if we win and then we can make up our mind as opposed to just saying we're not going to answer it because our answer is then going to become the position of Mm. uh, that's going to become the focus of 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 the campaign and we don't want this campaign to be about a choice between trump and biden we want this to be a referendum on biden and so biden and harris are just saying let's keep the focus on the referendum we're not even going to answer it i think they could be a little bit more artful and, and why they're not answering it. I do agree from the, uh, a Democratic campaign perspective, better not to answer it and, and keep this election a referendum. Yeah. Um, it might frustrate some people, but that's that's where they want to be. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo was in the Indo-Pacific region over the past week uh, or so, week plus, went to uh, Japan, went to India, uh, different places around the region. Uh, and uh, when he was in India, he was talking about how China now has some 60,000 soldiers on the northern border with India. Um, in general terms, his trip was meant to kind of reaffirm that the U.S. cares about the Indo-Pacific region at a time when China is definitely you know, making more, uh, more moves to exert its influence. Do you think he's successful in convincing the countries here that the U.S. still cares about what's happening and and is ready to put both soft and hard power in the region? Well, I think the U.S. is clearly focused on, or the Trump administration is focused on that hard power aspect. They're willing to work with Japan and Australia and India and other key allies of the United States when it comes to being aggressively containing China. Now, I don't think India needs any lectures about what's happening on the India-China border, so I'm not sure how how that message is is going Mm. to play out. Mm. Um, But it also shows that what the Trump administration is not doing, it's ignoring that economic aspect of working multilaterally. Of course, you go back to the the Trump administration pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership on day three of their administration. But look, the, the Trump administration just opened up an investigation against Vietnam um, for currency manipulation, which if the Commerce Department of the United States finds that they're going to put tariffs on Vietnamese goods. So why are you doing this? Why are you putting pressure on your allies economically um, when you should be working together, not just when it comes to saying we have to contain um, the Communist Party of China through military strength? And so I think that while you have Pompeo making one argument, you have the president through the Secretary of Commerce attacking 
you know, uh, you know, attacking from an economic pers perspective, potentially attacking someone we want to be working with, we the United States, we want to be working with Vietnam. So I, I see a very disjointed at best U.S. policy when it comes to Asia Pacific. Yeah, the uh, let's let's move forward to uh, Malaysia, and it was just announced that the Malaysian maritime authorities uh, have detained sixty six zero Chinese nationals and six Chinese registered fishing vessels that they say were in uh, Malaysian waters fishing. This is a, a common refrain. This happens quite often in a lot of places around this region. Uh, where are we now in terms of of a country like Malaysia? who's reported 89 intrusions by Chinese fishing vessels uh, in recent years uh, and the and the constant push push back by China and and Chinese economic interests. I mean I think this shows that this part of the world Southeast Asia in particular they understand they they want the United States here they want to work favorably with the United States um, because China is being very aggressive in on the Indian border in the South China Sea certainly in their rhetoric uh, towards Taiwan and and a, a US foreign policy that that recognized that and that built up these alliances would be very welcome here and so you're starting to see and especially if you get a second Trump term you're going to start seeing countries going their own way doing these types of things like Malaysia is doing. And that is actually going to destabilize the region. It would be much better to have a cohesive U.S. engagement multilaterally, working economically, working diplomatically, and working militarily um, to, to change the dynamic in the region. And so that's actually, in some ways, it's a good sign. Um, but in other ways, it's a very, it, it, it portends for a lot of trouble with what, be, what might be coming next um, under a, a second Trump term. What does this destabilization look like, just even within Malaysia, as that relationship between Malaysia and, and China is, is, you know, somewhat fractured? What does that do for business in the region? Does that make it more difficult for business people, let's say, in Singapore doing business up in Malaysia or around the region? Does that have any impact? Well, it adds another element of, of political risk. And, and more and more businesses now have to take into consideration political risk. It's no longer, you know, when you were looking to expand to new markets, you might be looking at, you know, you, you, you could look at currency risk or you could look, um, you know, at other social dynamics. Uh, that we're playing in addition to what are the market opportunities and is there a growing middle class and um, what are the FDI restrictions in one market versus another. But now you have a no, whole other element of, of geopolitical risk that you have to overlay as a business. So it is making it more complicated. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, this is the most important you know, and fastest growing region for a lot of businesses, U.S. businesses included, um, you know, was on the front page of the Straits Times yesterday, how American companies continue to be pouring into Singapore in terms of investment, bringing new employees in, hiring many more local uh, Singaporeans to work for them. So this is still the place you need to be, but it makes your judgments and decisions and your risk appetite different given everything that's going on in the region, especially as it, as it relates to U.S.-China and then China within the region itself. Mm. And our neighbor to the south here, Indonesia, is facing its own uh, challenges, internal challenges. Uh, just a week ago, they passed this so-called omnibus jobs creation bill, became law, seven out of nine parties uh, uh, and, and approving this 1,000-page 
long document that that is meant to uh, help the economy by giving more jobs and 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 focusing on jobs creation. Uh, what do we know about that bill? Is it uh, is it bad? I mean, a lot of people are really really coming out strongly against it and say it's going to be bad not only for the economy but for the environment and other issues. Well, I mean, I think look first of all, it is you know if you look at ease of doing business in the region, Indonesia ranks relatively low, um, and it's because of restrictions on labor. It's because of restrictions on investment. It's because of uh, you know cross-border restrictions. It's because of uh, data flows and data localization rules that could be coming down the pike. It's because of tax. So they really do need to reform, and that's why they need this omnibus approach. You just can't, you know, you can't, you know, change your economy in a way that is going to attract the type of investment you need to grow your jobs without without addressing everything. Mm. But it comes with a lot of different stakeholders. You can do it in a smart way. And if you look at you know the TPP as an example, that was a trade agreement where the governments recognized we have to address the environment and we have to address labor. Now, whether the omnibus bill has done that, and if it has done that, it clearly hasn't been uh, taken to the stakeholders uh, to, to have them buy in. So Indonesia will have a lot of work to do um, to make sure that there aren't those type of opposition because you have to include the environment and labor now. Um, okay. This may just be a, a way to get that done, but Indonesia is going to have a difficult time, especially trying to get all this done in the era of COVID, where you have a rising nationalism and populism um, across the world, not just there. Yeah. And finally, some good news, I guess, for some of us here in Singapore. Uh, a majority of Singaporeans now say that the country should remain open to foreigners. This was a survey that was done recently by the government feedback unit called REACH. It says that more Singaporeans feel positive than negative about the presence of foreigners here. That's good, right? No, I, I mean, it is good. I mean, I think that's a, it, it, it's, it's, it's happening for a couple reasons. I think, one, it, it is because the Singapore government is putting policies in place which do promote the Singapore core um, as, as being able to gain access to the types of, of jobs that are required to having a policy when it comes to foreign talent that recognizes you need to have a balance. It is also a recognition by foreign companies here mm. that you have to not only hire local, um, but that you have to promote from within, you have to give those opportunities, and then you have to talk about it. And that's right. what, you know, the American Chamber of Commerce is doing. It is what various members are doing within AmCham. You know, it could be a uh, Citibank, or it could be a J&J, &J, or it could be people coming in like Illumina. And, and so you're getting a lot more education, and it is paying off, but that doesn't mean it's over. And I think both the Singapore government and foreign businesses are going to have to recognize you're going to have to continue to educate and continue to hire more local and and promote more local. And then we can continue to get those poll numbers to move in the right direction. Definitely a multi-pronged strategy is going to be necessary there because uh, at the moment um, it, it has really been tough uh, for a lot of folks that are, you know, obviously out of jobs, Singaporeans, and, and feeling that they're facing uh, competition from overseas workers that they need to uh, um, somehow deal with, as is the government trying to, to look at that as well. Uh, Steve Oaken, thanks so much for joining us on our International News Review. we got to leave it there, but uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you, GVZ. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.